trails of troubles, rows of battles, fans of victory, we shall walk. Welcome to WEHC 90.7, and you're tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock. We're so glad that you tuned in on today, and we're continuing our discussion around leadership, disruptive leadership. We're looking at some change models, and so Carly is a pretty much an expert in one specific one, and I'm a quasi-expert in another, and then, uh, no, in all sincerity, we just know a little bit about a lot. <laughs> I love that. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, we just know a little bit about a lot, and so we're going to talk about, about that today and continuing us down the path, because we do really feel like in this day and age and where we are right now is that it is important for us to see change as part of leadership and and not see them as being incongruent with one another. So Carly, how are you doing today? It's good to see you. Doing well. It's good to see you too. Okay. Well, there are many change models out there. There are many, uh, there's some eight stages, there's five stages, there's four stages. I've seen 12 stages, but we're going to talk today about one that's generally accepted. And, and so we're going to talk about it. Just it's a five stage model. And so I'm just going to share them and then we're going to talk a little bit about them. And then Carly's going to talk a little bit about a specific model. And then if we have a time left, I'll talk further about another model. If not, we'll pick up on those next, next, uh, next time. But, um, I guess, you know, when we start talking about change, I heard something and it's pretty old now, but it was an adage that people used to say. They said that change is inevitable, but misery is optional. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think about that from the from the perspective that whatever you're doing, you can't expect change. But how you embrace that change and whether you embrace it positively or negatively, whether you look at it as something that's exciting and new and, and an opportunity, or whether, you know, it's that old, old age old adage about, are you half full or half empty? All of those kinds of things. So just want you to think about that. I, I firmly support that adage that change is inevitable. We are never going to be able to remain the same. All you have to do is look at your own life and you can see, hey, I am not the person I used to be, good, bad, or indifferent, but I am not the person that I used to be. I'm not the person I was 20 years ago, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, six months ago, a day, yesterday. Some things have happened in my life that have caused me to have to change. Carly, when we were off air, we were talking about you know, uh, one of the things I'm looking into is just that whole painful situation for the LGBTQ plus community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm looking at that from a change perspective. How can we do something that's going to be helpful? Because I've just been thinking about the intense pain that people who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community must experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And you were talking about whether they're in the closet or whether they're out and all that kind of stuff. Kind of just allude to that real quick, because this is not what we're going to talk about today, but this is what we were just talking about off air. And, and I think it's important because we've got to, we've got to change our attitudes and our way of looking at other people. So Carly, you were, you were sharing about people who are in and out and especially yeah. during holidays. Yeah, I think that that's where my mind was, is, is during the holidays, how that can be an extremely difficult time for members of the LGBTQ plus community, in part because, you know, if someone has just recently come out, they may have lost some family members, um, they may be trying to navigate the world in a new way. 
maybe they are out with their friends, but not out at home. And so then they, you know, feel like they have to quote unquote, go back in the closet while they're at home. Um, and especially for our um, trans brothers and sisters, feeling, you know, being misgendered or um, being called your dead name, you know, that can be extremely damaging. And so the holidays can be an extremely difficult time for, for that group of people. And I think that's something that needs to be acknowledged and recognized. But also, like you said, you know, what can we do to help that, right? And how yeah. can we use our disruptive change um, leadership ideas, right, to help that community? That's so important. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about that because and and I've been, been thinking about it. Yeah, so we'll talk about we're talking about the stages of change, but we just had to get that out because we were talking about that off, off air, and it still is one of those things. And yeah, I think that one of our from a disruptive leadership perspective is that when we talk about disruptive leadership and we talk about the things that have changed, we talk about, you know, a whole anti-racism piece. We talk about the whole LGBTQ plus piece. We talk about the structures of business. All of those kinds of things are things that are ready and prone and subject to change. Well, the model that we're going to talk about today, I, I and Carly, we're going to talk about it a little bit one-on-one, -on -one, but I'll just go ahead and list the five stages of change. And, and these are generally accepted. Like I said, you might have six, you might have eight, you might have 12, but generally it kind of looks like this. And people use this in, um, in mental health. They use it in all kinds of places and spaces because anywhere where you're trying to modify behavior uh, or you're trying to bring about the desired, a desired result, you go through this. And so the first stage is pre-contemplation. And in that stage, it says that you're not yet acknowledging that there is a problem or a behavior that needs to change, but you're thinking about it a little bit. You're kind of going, hmm, like if, if I was thinking about it from the perspective of needing to lose a few pounds, you know, I mean, that's not a necessarily leadership, but I'm just trying to bring it home. I'm trying to be real transparent here, needing to lose a few pounds, you know, you, you think about it, but you don't really see it as major, you know, until you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, your blood sugar is X, Y, Z, then that changes. So anyway, so pre-contemplation is the, is the first stage. So you're not yet acknowledging that there is a problem uh, behavior that needs to be changed. And then secondly, contemplation. And there's where you get to that awareness and the acknowledgement that there is a problem, but I'm not ready to deal with it. I know that I need to do, do it, but I just don't believe that I can right now, or I don't believe that I want to do it right now. And then the third stage is uh, preparation or you get determined to do something about it. You, you, you say, okay, we do this all the time with New Year's resolutions. When January comes, it's a new year. I'm going to do something different. I'm getting ready to change. And then we take the action or the willpower. We actually decide that we are going to do something. We take the steps to change that behavior. And then after that behavior is changed, then we have to maintain that behavior. We have to figure out how are we going to keep the desired behavior that we want. And in leadership, that desired behavior, that maintenance may be short. It's not forever. And, and sometimes people think, oh, I've made the change. We've done this. This is it. Now we're finished. You're never finished. It's constant. And especially from a disruptive leadership perspective, we're constantly doing it. So mm -hmm. let's let's talk a little bit, Carly, maybe about each one of those and just see how yeah. that goes. Like that pre-contemplation stage, um, let's, what, what, what are you thinking when, when I gave that, that, uh, definition or, or the author had said that they're not yet thinking, not yet acknowledging of what they're doing or what they're not doing, that yeah. behavior needs to be changed. I think for that, especially when we're thinking about it in terms of leadership, um, that can often be maybe a little bit of denial, right? 
or mm -hmm. a little bit of like, well, people keep raising this concern, but I don't really see that that's a concern. Mm -hmm. And then after a while of thinking about it, you're like, okay, I think I'm starting to get it now. And then that mm -hmm. transitions you into contemplation for a pre-contemplation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sort of that you're not acknowledging that there's a problem yet, either because maybe you don't see the full picture or because maybe there is a little bit of denial there or um, that you just aren't maybe ready to tackle that quite yet. Um, so it's sort of that that seed that's planted of like, okay, there might be something here, but I don't have the resources or whatever to deal with that right now. And then transitioning into that contemplation stage is you going, there is an issue and here's what we need to do about it. Sort of. And thing. sometimes in leadership, Carly, like, especially in hierarchical leadership, you know, people have the ability to, to not listen, mm -hmm. to intentionally not listen. And so sometimes they could be told that this is the same problem by 65 different people, you know? <laughs> 65 different people can tell you this is a problem here this is a problem there but you're just not yet ready to acknowledge that this is a problem now now in disruptive leadership you don't get the an opportunity to remain here really long mm -hmm. because in disruptive leadership sometimes it's a suddenly it, it, it hits you. It's right in the face. Like when we talk about it from an anti-racism perspective, we talk about it like when George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd just plummeted everybody into an anti-racism piece. Like we've got to do something about this mm -hmm. because this was ridiculous. So we didn't have time to think about it. Although we've been coming from the civil rights movement, we've been doing all these other kinds of things. You know, we, we can go all the way back from enslavement to Jim Crow to civil rights and but this didn't happen like that. There was not a whole lot of time for pre-contemplation. And there wasn't a whole lot of time for everybody to say that this was national. This was yeah. international, the media. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. And I think when we look at these stages, I think that disruptive change is almost like launching you straight into action and willpower because mm -hmm. you've skipped pre-contemplation and contemplation. And then you don't even really get preparation either because it's like, no, we have to do something and we have to do something now. There's no getting ready to change. We're changing and we're changing now. And I think it just sort of launches you into that action piece. <laughs> yeah, I think so too, because I think sometimes in leadership and especially in hierarchical leadership, people try to live in that pre-contemplation stage. Mm. They That's their choice. That's where they operate better, where they don't have to think about anything other than the status quo. Uh, yeah. One of our shows we talked about, I can't think what her name was. It was Christine somebody, but she was a, a black woman and her, the name of her company was the new quo. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to move the status quo. When we talked about uh, people who uh, were making a name for themselves as disruptive leaders in their specific industry. And uh, hers was in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. But I think sometimes the hierarchical leadership wants to stay there and disruptive leadership is not, as you said, is not giving them an opportunity because people try to justify that behavior or I'm trying to say this in a gentle way because we've all been around the block a time or two, but I, I can remember once being in an environment where I had a boss and everybody complained, wasn't just me, but everyone just about complained about the boss's behavior. They liked the boss well, well enough. They, they really liked the boss, but the boss's behavior always led to the same place, which was kind of like inactivity. And I remember we, we went to the, um, our superior, the head at that time, and he he acknowledged it himself and he even said, what can I do about this? But even when people were saying and do this and do that, it never happened. And so that person in a hierarchical leadership perspective loves staying in that pre-contemplation position. 
or even in the contemplation of like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that there's something here, but I'm not yet ready to make the change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that that is something that happens quite a bit when you are in sort of that traditional patriarchal sort of mode of leadership. Yeah, and, and because you have the privilege to be able to do that. One of the things I like about disruptive leadership is it takes away some of your privilege of being able to stay like you are. It snatches it, like you said, it's there, it's in your face. It takes mm-hmm. away, you don't have the luxury to use your privilege to say, I'd like to do something about it. And yeah, I need, I know I need to, but I'm going to wait on that. You know, you don't really have that uh, ability to do that. You have to try to figure out, you have to start the research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say, what it, well, how did I get here? You know, and uh, where do I want to be? And how do I, what steps do I take to get to where I want to be? And I think that that gets us to that whole place with that, that action. As you said earlier, disruptive leadership requires <laughs> that we take action. It won't let us not. Right. We don't, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you don't have a choice. So yeah. the choice is, is taken away from you. And, and, and so you, you have to be motivated to change, but you know what, Carly, I wonder how many people, and especially in, in a, uh, traditional hierarchical leadership, how many people are in denial? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there are stumbling blocks in each of these steps, right? Mm-hmm. But especially in those early stages, that's where people can really stumble because you, I mean, not even like taking a step and thinking like, well, you know, I'll get to that next quarter or, you know, we'll deal with that later or that's kind of an issue but this other thing is more important so we're going to focus on that and we understand that leaders sometimes have to make tough decisions but when there's something that is important and vital you know that is where that action and willpower stage has to be implemented yeah I I think that if we are going to be disruptive leaders and we're going to use a disruptive leadership change model and we're going to see that it is value added this disruption is not a, a negative thing. This is a positive thing. And I think that's the first step in, in this process is, you know, we talked about contemplation, pre-contemplation, you know, those kinds of things. But another way of calling that or looking at it might be an acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. There has to be an acknowledgement that we cannot go back to the way things were. We need to find a new success, quote unquote, whatever that looks like. And then we need to have ways and means of moving forward. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's all in that whole action piece and, and that whole, you know, willingness to do it. And I, I don't know if we, I don't know where acknowledgement really fits in there. I don't know. Do you have any idea you think about that? But I, I well, just think that it's, it's, this change can't take place until there's an acknowledgement. So they have sort of acknowledgement in contemplation because you're acknowledging that there's a problem, Mm -hmm. but you're not quite ready to make the change yet, either because you don't have the resources or the information. There's still, you know, research that needs to be done for whatever reason, you're not quite ready to actually do the action step yet. Mm -hmm. But then between action and contemplation, there's preparation and determination, which is sort of, okay, I now have the pieces. I know how I'm going to get this done. I've made the plan. Now it's time to put the plan in place. And I think there's acknowledgement in there as well of, this is, you know, because you have to say, this is how we've done it in the past and this is how we're going to do it now. And that it requires acknowledgement. And, and yeah, it's something has to change. I was thinking about, I have this little mantra that I say, that's kind of the opposite of this, but I'll just share it anyway. I've got this little mantra that I have to say when I get in situations that are uncomfortable or they're situations that I don't want to be in, I shouldn't have to be. I always say this. I say, I don't want to do this, 
I don't have to do this. I am not going to do this. And so the, you know, I, sometimes my self-talk is just those three statements. I mean, that mm -hmm. is what will cause me to shift, will cause me to make the change that is necessary because sometimes you're in situations and circumstances and you realize, you know, I don't want to do this, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and then you have to get to where I don't have to do this. And then you get to where I am not going to do this. And so I guess, you know, if we were looking at it from a change perspective, we would say, I've got to do something about this. I've got to make a move or I've got to make a change. I cannot go on like this. We cannot go on like this. My company cannot go on like this. My school, my university cannot go on like this. I mean, mm -hmm. I think you would you would kind of get get to that place where where you would say that. But Carly, what do you think about like what are some things from a disruptive leadership perspective about motivating people to change? What should be or what could be some of the motivators in situations like our anti-racism or in situations like the LGBTQ plus or you know what could be motivators for people to want to change? I mean, that's an excellent question. I can only speak from like myself, right? Mm -hmm. Simply wanting to live in an anti-racist inclusive world would be one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but, you know, for, for others, I mean, that incentive piece, right, which is the question of why would we want this? it can be complex because people are going to have different reasons for wanting to do things. Um, and especially when it comes to activist work or anti-racist work or inclusive work, people are going to have their different reasons for wanting to do that. And not everybody is going to approach change from that perspective of simply wanting to not do harm. And as much as we would like, we would hope that everybody would be on the same page with that. Um, not everybody is going to be. And we've seen that too, where people um, have, you know, moved their positions, even like political positions, based on everything that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. People are now having conversations they were not having before. And not all of them are having them for altruistic reasons, but they're still having them, right? And so again, it's sort of, it's very kind of murky, that, that incentive mm -hmm. piece, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so, because, you know, the bottom line, you know, financially, the bottom line is not enough. There has mm -hmm. to be something else that, you know, gives us the will to want to change, the will to want to do, the will to be, because the bottom line is not enough. You know, just more money. I mean, right. more money and then what? Or higher yields or better returns for mm -hmm. investors or, you know, more students in the school. You know, those are not real reasons to to want to engage or get involved in this this change model. And then, Carly, finally, in this model, before we go to the next one, um, that whole maintenance piece. What what did you think about that? About how I mean, it's this I, I, again. I'll say it's the same way with a diet or a reduction plan or anything. You know, the sometimes the easiest thing is to do it. The hardest part is to maintain it. And uh, and I think sometimes, you know, setting goals, maintenance goals are really, really hard. Yeah, I think the maintenance is the hardest part, right? And when we think of maintenance, we might think, okay, we're just going to freeze right here and we're just going to keep doing this now. We've, we've done the change model. We have a better system now. We're just going to freeze and do just that. But that's not, to me, what maintenance is. What maintenance is to me is we've got kind of where we want to be now. Now we've got to keep that work up. 
So we have to continue to reassess. We have to continue to make sure, for example, if we're going to continue with sort of our inclusive example, we have made, you know, we've achieved these goals and we're going to maintain those goals, but we're also going to check back in with those goals to make sure that they are continuing to be inclusive. And if the, if we find that they're not, or we find other underlying issues, then we're going to change those again. So it's not just we've changed and we freeze and we do nothing else in that line, right? It's now we have to check in. We have to continue to check in. I was thinking of uh, two models while you were saying that. Um, one of them I can remember specifically is back in the day with uh, total quality initiatives. And we used to have a PDCA model. And that model was plan, do, check, act. Mm, yeah. Plan, do, check, act. And so you had to do that all the time from a continuous improvement perspective. So you didn't get to sit on your laurels and, and say, now, these are just going to be new bad habits. This is going to be now, this is the new normal. This is the way we're going to do it. And this way we're going to do it from here to eternity. You couldn't do that. You had to constantly be looking at your systems to see if they were productive or not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing we didn't mention, Carly, we didn't talk about the planning of that model. You know, like how do you, from a disruptive leadership perspective, how would you start to look at planning that change? I mean, is is there a way that you go about after you go through all those stages and you think, Hey, I need to do something. How, what do you do? Or how do you go about planning that change? You know, we talked about that model PDCA plan, do check mm -hmm. act, but I mean, how, what do you implement? How do you do? So one of the other um, change models that I think kind of breaks that down into some really actionable pieces is the Lipit Noster model for managing complex change. And it has several elements, um, vision, consensus or trust, skills, incentives, resources, action plan, right? Because you have to have all those elements in order to do the thing. So you've done the contemplation and the pre-contemplation. You understand why you're doing what you're doing. Now this is the stuff that needs to be in place to do the thing. So, um, you know, vision, of course, is the why. Trust is trusting that you'll have the support that you need to be able to do the thing. Um, having the skills. Do I need specific training? Do I need to do some more research? What do I need to do? Incentives, making sure you understand what you're going to get out of this process. The resources, you know, how are we going to fund this? Or do I need, you know, specific physical resources to do this? And then the action plan of this is the step-by-step -step of what we're going to do. Um, and the reason that I like this model so much is because sometimes it can be difficult to figure out what's missing. Okay, we have the vision, but maybe not the skills, or we have you know, the trust, but we don't have the resources or whatever, right? And it can be difficult to figure out what element is actually missing. Mm -hmm. And this model help walks you through that by telling you how you feel in the specific situations. So for example, if you don't have a vision, you're going to be confused, right? You're not really going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. If you don't have trust, there's going to be sabotage, right? You're going to feel like you're being sabotaged. Um, if you don't have the skills, you're going to feel anxious, if you don't have incentives, then they're going to feel resistant because why am I doing this if I don't understand what I'm getting out of it? If you don't have the resources, you're going to feel frustrated. You're asking me to do this thing, but I have nothing to do the thing with. Um, and then the action plan is what they call the treadmill or like the hamster wheel, right? Of like, mm -hmm. we, we do, we've done all the pre-work, but we're not doing the actual work. And so we're just kind of running on this hamster wheel, getting nothing done. So I really like that because you can kind of tell where you are in the process by how you feel, um, which I think is extremely helpful. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation so far between Reverend Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock about change models. We're going to have to pause right here, 
for this week. But do tune in to She Walks next Wednesday at the same time, same place for the second part of the conversation right here on WEHC Emory and WISE FM WISE. Pass of the victory, we shall walk.